happened to him. He, he didn't know much about spirituality anymore. He wasn't connected with God in a real deep way at all. He just knew that he needed to be this godly man. Now, his motives for coming in, I wouldn't say are the optimal motives, but they are nonetheless, they were effective. And so she is calling and seeing how he's doing. He's like, yeah, I think I really like this church. Over a period of time, I started seeing this transformation in this guy. And, 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 and if I said his name, you'd know him. He, he just started to kind of like come alive spiritually. He's hearing the gospel. The Spirit's doing work on his heart. And she's calling to see how he's growing. He's like, I'm doing good. I eventually got involved in those conversations, which was really weird. But yeah, no, he's doing good. <laughs> Reporting back home. And uh, it, it, we had many, many conversations, many, many lunches, many, many, you know, through, at church. And it's interesting because he was done with his faith. But something about the gospel, something about the, the way that, that, that the Spirit does when, when you are hearing truth and it's resonating and it's, in, it's a, in, I think, affecting his very life, I just watched his total life transform. Now when I talk to him, I'm like, dude, cool, the spirituality stuff. You know what I mean? Like he's real, like he's great like that. And every single week it was like, oh, man, I never knew that. I never thought that. I, that, that thank you for sharing that. out of that. I, I never saw it that way. There's a whole world out there of people like my friend who is now a, a strong believer. Barna put this study out. And they were studying particularly young people who went to church and where they're at now, many years later, grew up in a home like that. And it was concerning, uh, the study, but encouraging in another way because of this passage we're going to read today. It said that one out of five, sorry, one out of ten, when they grew up in, the home, in their home, of a Christian home or in church, they turned from God. They are no longer Christians. They refuse. And then four out of ten which would be a total, if I put them together, is about one out of every two people, kids growing up in the church, then found themselves going, well, I would say that I'm a Christian, but I don't want really anything to do with Christianity or its practices, but I am a Christian. So they have a connection with the spirituality, the connection with our faith, but they don't have the impact that drives them into the practice more. I think that we are surrounded, if you think about it, by people like that. We are surrounded by people who are familiar with the faith but haven't been impacted by the gospel. We're surrounded by people who hope for more but don't have it quite yet. And this is what we'll get into today. It's just, just, it's all around us. If we think that people are not interested in spirituality or our faith, you're wrong. You can have a conversation with so many different people and they'll say, yeah, I was raised in the church, but... And these are the opportunities that we have to present the gospel, the good news, the thing that they were hoping for but didn't find, but have an opportunity with you in front of them to then share that hope. I get this all the time. I try not to tell people in a conversation when I'm first getting to know them that I'm a pastor because the conversation quickly changes. Like, I'm no longer a human being anymore. I'm now like, oh, okay, well, I'm sorry for all the cuss words I just said. I'm like, you're good. It's cool. You're fine. But I always get this. It's almost without fail. 
if they're another believer, oh, what church do? Great, great, great. But if, if, they're, if they're someone who's left the church, it's always just like this. Oh, man, well, I grew up in the church, but I don't really go. I'm like, oh, that's okay. They're confessing to me. They, this is confession time. And I'm not sure what I believe anymore. I, I, I just don't know. I just, with churches, you know, churches and, and we had, you know, these issues and they kept going on. And then I have this beautiful opportunity to present the gospel to them in a way that maybe that has been ordained in this moment. To talk about who the God that I know and the God that they might not know and the true life and salvation. I always get those opportunities when those moments happen. I should probably out myself more as a pastor because it happens all the time. We are surrounded by people like this. We can't just assume that because someone was raised in the church or someone says they're a Christian but they don't practice that they truly believe. It just might have been a time in their life where they got distracted and caught off course or had issues that, that happened within their family and no longer want to be a part of Christianity or even some not even calling them a believer. But those people and those conversations are the opportunity that we have been given. God places them right in front of you. He tees it up. Do we act on those things? I titled this message, The Gospel's Journey. And this is really where it starts. The Gospel's Journey takes flight here. The big question you will have to ask and you will ask at the end of this message is where will the gospel take you? Where will it take you? When we fully give ourselves over to the passion of sharing the gospel, where will it take you? Who will it bring you in front of? Where were the places that you will find yourself having conversations about the gospel, about Jesus, about what he's done in your life? Where will he take you? I don't know. That, that's just going to be your question between you and God. Isaiah 52, 7. Paul quotes this, this, this passage in Romans. But let me read its full context because I actually like it better in Isaiah than I do in Romans. And it says, How beautiful on the mountains are the feet of the messenger who brings good news. How wonderful when someone shows up and you're at the valley and they come over the mountain with good news. The good news of peace and salvation. The news that God of Israel reigns. How good is that news? And how great is it when the feet of that person delivers it to you? You don't know how desperate people are. We assume people are fine because, because they live an almost social media life, even in front of us. But we know, as people who post on social media, that the family photo is an absolute disaster, but everyone's like, you look so beautiful. But they don't know the 45 minutes of a nightmare of calming your kids down, yelling at them. Later on, they're going to have to have therapy for this. Like they, We don't know people put the face but they're hurting, they're dying inside. And we can never, never make the mistake of the assumption that they're just fine. They're not. They're not just fine. How good is the news and the feet of the one who bears it for those who are in the valley? I would like to just do my own little poll here. If you could, for a second, I think it's good to see the numbers. But... If you're in here and you were a non-Christian and someone brought the gospel to you, or if you were someone who was away from your faith, but someone really shared and discipled you back into the faith, would you just raise your hand up? Put your hand up high. This is, this is what that looks like. Your life is eternally changed because someone showed up with the good news. Am I right? 
How great were the feet of those people who delivered it to you, who had the boldness to see that, you know, you may pretend you're fine, but you're not fine, right? They look through all of the smoke in mirrors to come find you. I was reading this story about these two friends from India, and they lived in a, in a region that had thousands of villages. And they were asking people, like mentors who come to visit from the United States, and they said, how do we share the gospel I, I, to, to villages that, that, that no one believes and no one even knows who Jesus is? And they said, oh, just go out and ask them, um, have you heard of Jesus? And if not, would you like to know? And they're like, that's it? Like, that's it. And so they did. These two friends, they went out to the next village and they walked through the village and people knew they were different and they were walking through and, and then they said no one wanted to hear what they had to say and no one wanted to talk to them. And finally a guy said, what are you doing here? You're not from here. And he says, well, we're here to talk about Jesus. Do you know him? And if not, would you like to know? And he goes, whoa, whoa, whoa. I have heard of a Jesus, this Jesus you're talking about, but I don't know anything about him. And he, they started to share the gospel and what's funny, what's happened is he goes, stop some midpoint. And they thought, oh, he doesn't want to hear. And he says, no, 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 stop. I need to go get my family because we have talked about this. And I want to get my friends. And he brings all of his family and friends. He says, now continue. Tell us about this Jesus. So he ends up, they end up baptizing, bringing, I think it was 20-some people to the Lord in that village. And then they say, well, what do we do now? And he goes, well, I'll tell you what we know. You go into the next village. And you say, I'm here to talk about Jesus. Do you know him? And if you don't, would you like to know? And they're like, okay. 350 villages later, 350 churches later, that is where it began. Listen, people are dying to hear the good news. No matter what they pretend that life is like or how great it is, they're looking to hear something more. And the gospel, when it's presented, the Spirit's at work. So you can't discount what he's doing. So let's look at chapter 13. This is Paul's first missionary journey. He has three of them that we know about, right? There's three missionary journeys, possibly four. But we can see in some of the other writings of the epistles that maybe there was four. But let's go with the three. The first one of his three missionary journeys, you can put, this, put it up on the screen here, Chad, um, this is this small little loop. This will be the smallest distance traveled. We're going to go halfway through the journey. 14 will complete the journey. Chapter 14 next week will complete the journey of their mission. And so it's interesting because throughout the, all the three journeys that Paul has, these missionary journeys, he travels over 10,000 miles to go preach the gospel. Now to you, 10,000 miles is the flight, but to Paul, this was a treacherous journey. Think about the settlers when they first came to the United States just trying to get to the West Coast. How many of them died? How horrible the journey was. How many people died of sickness? How many people didn't make it? Thousands and thousands and thousands of people died on that journey. And this, that was even easier than it was then. So Paul goes on this very difficult 10,000-mile journey we know that Paul planted 14 churches in those journeys that we know of, probably many more. He did it by boat, he did it by foot, he did it up mountains, down mountains, in multiple cities, multiple cultures, and over seven years traveling these journeys, right? All of them combined in that time. 
Now, there's a historical documentary um, that you probably have seen, Forrest Gump, right? And Forrest Gump, in this historical documentary, he goes and he runs across the United States five times. He travels 15,000 miles, and it's this huge feat. But Forrest, we don't know why he's running. He just realizes he missed Jenny, and he had to go home. We don't really know why he was running. We know exactly why Paul was doing what he was doing. Paul knew exactly what he was doing. And by the time Paul finishes all of his journeys, all of his journeys to Jerusalem, and his journey to Rome, and also his possible fort. He traveled many, many more miles than our dear friend Forrest Gump. I mean, he gave his entire life to the gospel. I think this is an inspiration to a lot of us that we can travel to the neighbor next door, that we can travel just the cubicle over to the coworker, or while we're in class, we can travel just the desk over. Paul was a great example. And Paul, in his journey, lets us know kind of what it was like. And this is when we see someone who's willing to endure anything for other people's freedom. This is why I would say I would honor the work that he did. He writes about it a little bit in 1 Corinthians. Paul's not really a complainer at all. But some people were challenging him, saying he wasn't as committed as he should be. And this is what he writes in response. He says in 1 Corinthians 11, 23. Sorry, this might be 2 Corinthians. I might have it wrong up there. He says this. I was and had imprisonments. With countless beatings and often near death, five times I received at the hand of the Jews 40 lashes less one. And so he was beat that many times. He probably had an unrecognizable back. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned, which is a death sentence. So imagine recovering from multiple stones being thrown at your head and your body. Paul might have looked a little different when you saw him. It might have been a little concerning. Three times I was shipwrecked. At night and day I drifted at sea on frequent journeys in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from Gentiles, danger in city, in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at the sea, and danger from false brothers. This has not been an easy journey for him. In toil and hardship, though my, through my many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, and often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from all other, or some other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak? And I am not weak. He says, who is made to fall? And I am not indignant. I love verse 30. If I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Verse 31, the God of the Father, the Lord Jesus Christ, who is blessed forever. I do this all for him. So when we think about Paul's journeys, sometimes we think of like, what an amazing journey. Like if you were to book a trip and you're going to Europe, you're like, oh, it's going to be amazing. This is not what happened for Paul. These are not cute little sailing trips. This isn't a great hike. This is a brutal experience for someone who's passionate about bringing freedom to other people. Chapter 13, it starts out in verse 1 through, I think it's through 3. They're at the church of Antioch. I could do a whole sermon on this, but I won't. They're at the church of Antioch, and what they're doing is they're praying. 
and they're fasting. And why people fast when they pray is because you're involving your body into the prayer as well. That's what fasting is with your mind, your emotion, your body. They're desperate to hear from the word of the Lord. They're listening and they hear the Holy Spirit say, set apart Saul and Barnabas and send them. Now, it's really tough to, 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 if I have a staff member who's really, really talented and they're like, I feel called to go to the church over here or down here or across the world. I'd be like, <laughs> let's not send our best. <laughs> I've got a couple other people I could offer up, God. Like, you know what I mean? Like, this was a hard send. This is Paul and Barnabas, the leaders of the church, but the Holy Spirit needed his work done. And so they sent them. Acts 13, 4. It says, so being sent out by the Holy Spirit... They went down to Cilicia, which is the port city of Antioch, where they could sail on into Cyprus, it says. They evangelized at Salamis, this port city, which was the largest city of the island of Cyprus, pretty big island. They evangelized there, and they had great movement there in the city. And then they traveled 115 miles across the island, evangelized the entire way until they got to the city capital of Patmos. And their preaching was getting such attention that the governor of the, of, of the island, which was, I mean, he was sitting in the Roman Senate. This is a prominent guy. He got, they got uh, his attention, and his name is Sergius Paulus, and he wanted to hear more from what they had to say, because this is important to know where they're going to go with this one person. And the Bible says that there was this false prophet there, this magician type of guy. His name is Bar-Jesus, meaning son of Joseph. And he's there going, no, these guys are against Rome. Don't listen to what they have to say. He had the governor's ear, kind of his mystical guy. And then Paul looks at him, rebukes him. Nowhere else in the Bible does this happen. And I don't think it happened since. Paul rebukes him. And the guy goes blind. His name is son of Joseph. Paul calls him a son of the devil goes blind, and then people had to lead him away with, by his hand. But listen to the next verse after that happens. In verse 13, then the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, he believed. That got his attention. Something's different here. And when, they saw, when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teaching of the Lord, so he becomes someone who believes because of the teaching of the word. Not because of the blinding, because of the teaching of the word. And so from there, they sail to Perga, which is a port city in modern-day Turkey now. I always wondered why he went there. But it starts to make sense over time. You start to see something has happened. But when they arrive at the port city, Perga, we know from Galatians that this is when Paul gets really sick. He probably gets malaria because at that time there are writings of malaria breaking out everywhere and Paul probably contracts it there and then he still has to go on mission because he's headed somewhere. He hikes 311 miles over a very tough, rugged terrain and he at an elevation of 3,600 feet and arrives at his destination he had planned on while he was extreme extremely sick and he arrives at another city called Antioch from Pisidian though this is a different Antioch city and it's interesting is I think 
Archaeology showed us probably why Paul went there. Um, put up this little inscription here, Chad. They found this in Antioch and Pisidian, the historical site. And this is Sergius Paulus, the guy in Cyprus, right, who believed. This is his, his, his inscription there. So they believe that he had family there. And so while he's talking to Paul, he's like, you know where you should go? You should probably go here to my family. He had a place probably to go. That same inscription is, is the same one that they found in ancient Papamus in Cyprus. So we know that there was a connection there. Paul was just going where the Spirit was leading. The Spirit led him from there to this guy, to his family in Antioch. At this point, before they head up there, John Mark, who's traveling with them, we'll see him come back. He actually leaves and goes the opposite direction, back to Jerusalem. And I think might have it part of, we don't know why, but later on we're going to read that Paul was really frustrated that he did that. He felt abandoned by them, by, 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 um, by John Mark. Eventually reconcile later. But it's interesting because I think if I'm following a leader and he's got malaria and he's really sick and we've got a 311-mile journey up these rugged mountains, I'm going like, hey, I'm pretty sure I probably should go home, right? But Paul presses on. I wanted to share all of that with you, who he is, because it shows the kind of heart that we as believers have to have for those of the lost and dying world. Paul and Barnabas, they get there and they go to what they traditionally do, the Jewish synagogue. It'd be just like somebody coming right in here. They're from another country and they sit down and I'm like, oh my gosh, we have a, 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 a pastor from, from uh, wherever, India, you name it. And come on up and share. And then they begin to share. That's what happens. They invite them up after the service. Paul and Barnabas begin to share. And boy, oh boy, they do not like what they share. I, can, I put myself in the shoes of those leaders of that synagogue, and I thought, ooh, that was probably very uncomfortable once Paul and Barnabas started sharing about this Jesus that had come. I guarantee, just like we would hear at the next staff meeting, hey, guys, guess what? New church policy. No no, no new visitors ever share, okay? Like, I'm sure this was a big deal because it erupts in a huge, huge issue within the synagogue. But we're going to see a few things in his sermon when we read it. There's going to see, I think we're going to see five. Five things that we should be aware of when we're talking to people who are spiritually aware but not fully informed, Okay? And, 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 and we're going to see later when Paul is in another city in Athens, which they are not spiritually, they're spiritually in tune, they're, they're desiring spirituality, but they have no context for the history of God of Israel. And so Paul then delivers another sermon that looks very different from this sermon. But this one is to people who are spiritually in tune, they are familiar with the faith, but they don't fully understand or know the truth, like a lot of people we're surrounded with in our culture today. But the first thing Paul does is he gives perspective. The perspective is, is that all throughout history, God has been good. And I think people need to hear that. All throughout history, God has been good. Perspective is pointing out God's love for his children, especially when we can't see it. That's what we do when we're sharing our faith with somebody. We're sharing the good news is that God is good. And has been good. Here's what he says. Acts 13, 16, verse 22. 
uh, 16 through 22. Men of Israel and those who fear God. Really quick point. Men of Israel are those who are Israelites. And men who, and those who fear God are Gentiles who are observant of God but aren't are Gentiles. They're not of Israel. It says, The God of this people, Israel, chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in Egypt. You're going to notice a theme here. It's not necessarily anything else anybody else has done. We're going to hear a lot about what God does, not by the hands of people. And it says, and uplifted them by the, uh, uh, sorry, uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And about 40 years he put them in the wilderness. And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land and inheritance. All this took about 450 years, which does add up. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. Then, he asked, then they asked for a king, and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when they had removed him, he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified God, saying, I have found in David, a son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do my will. Do you hear all the God dids, God dids, God dids in this? When you read it in that context, you see what Paul is clearly doing. Is that God is good and he's for you. And God delivers for you. This sets up his next part. And we have to realize that God never stops providing for them. That's what he's trying to tell them. God never stopped loving you when you felt like things were down. We never stop hoping in his promises, right? So he's kind of reminding them. We never stop hoping that God is good. I think people often lose perspective of how much God loves them. We live in a world around us that they've lost the perspective of how much they have a loving God who desires deeply to have relationship with them. So his perspective sets up his proclamation. Paul proclaims that the promise has been fulfilled. Paul announces that all this good God who's done all these things has done one more great thing and you must know about it. He, the promises has been fulfilled. In Acts 13, 23, he goes on to say, of this man's offspring, David's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. You didn't know about it, did you? That's what he's saying. As he promised. Before his coming, John, John the Baptist, had proclaimed the baptism of repentance to all the people of Israel. I think John was probably very famous in Israel. And all these satellite synagogues out in the Gentile world very much were in tune what was happening right there. It's like us. We're way out here, but we very much know what's happening in D.C., right? That was the epicenter. And it says this. Um, and, and when he talked about John, and when he finished this course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not. I am not he, meaning that don't think look to me as this Messiah, this promise. I'm just announcing before he comes. Behold, after me one is coming, the sandals of whom feet I am not worthy to untie. He's letting them know God has been good. And he's always delivered. And it's through his power. And now he's done this one more time. But this time, it's the time. And he's proclaiming to them the truth. Something that they didn't know or had missed. 
It's interesting because when he uses that phrase, John, he says, I'm not worthy to untie his shoes. Such a fascinating statement because there, there is a rule book for rabbis in the ancient world. And one of them was because rabbis would abuse their apprentices. It's like if I had interns and I told them like, oh, it's so great. Can you wash my car as well? I want to see it perfectly done, vacuuming it as well. It's an abuse of an intern, right? And they were, they were abusing in a way their young apprentices. And so they made a rule that you cannot, a rabbi cannot ask someone to untie their shoe and take it off. And John says, listen, even if I could. I wouldn't untie that shoe. I'm not even worthy. He's acknowledging this person who is so much greater. You know, he has not forgotten his promises. It arrived just as he said. And I think, too, even when I, when I prayed, I remember when I became a believer and I prayed to God I was raised in a Christian home, but I didn't really like it, and I didn't like Christianity very much. I just people know this about me. I, I was one of those statistics for sure. And I remember as I began, I gave my life to God in my room by myself when I was 19. I, I had read and I had remembered and I had heard these things that God was gracious, that I would experience His mercy, that I would feel life. That I, what was missing would be complete. That I would have uh, ultimately forgiveness. And then I have, would have something to hope in. And you know what? That everything that I read and heard had, was true when I became a believer. I experienced all of those things. He had not forgotten those things. He delivered on them like he promised. The next thing is, is after that, he makes this proclamation, but then he lets them know that some will not perceive it. Some will miss it. Don't miss it, is what Paul is warning these hearers. He says in, in verse 26, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, remember these two groups, to us. Now this is problematic if you know the Bible this is now Paul is saying no longer to just the Jews, but to the Gentiles. And now even in his sermon, when he talks about this hope, he's saying to us, all of us, has sent the message of salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterance of the prophets of which they read every Sabbath. They're reading every Sunday. We're preaching sermons every Sunday and God shows up in the very way of which they've been preaching and they do not see it and they reject it. That happens when we do not perceive. It says this, uh, and they fulfilled those promises when they condemned him. And though they found no guilt with it of worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried him, uh, when they carried it all out, it was written, uh, all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree. This is a Deuteronomy prophecy that those who are cursed or hung on a tree, they take him down from the tree and they laid him in a tomb, meaning... They're letting him know Jesus was dead. But verse 30, here's where our hope comes in. But God raised him up from the dead. And for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem. And now are his witnesses to the people. 
I think many, many people miss what's right in front of them. They miss the very Messiah that God promised to send them, that they preached about every Sunday. There are so many times that we talk about hope and faith and trust that God's going to be there on your behalf. But when God does sometimes show up, we completely miss it. Even though we heard it every Sunday and we're looking for something else, but God's showing up very real to you. This happened with the Messiah. They even miss the provisions they hoped for every day. Let me get to these last two. As we go from perception, like do you perceive that it's happening, to then revealing how God has prepared for this moment for a long time. Everything points to Christ. Everything in the Old Testament points to this moment. When you read the Old Testament, read it through the lens that it's for the Messiah. God prepares his people in the Old Testament for him. And he lets them know that he's been doing this. Don't miss it. I think even our life journeys that way. Of God has been preparing us through revealing things over and over through our life journey. That in the moment he's showing you he's never not been with you. And he's pointing towards Christ for what you've been looking for. Acts 13.32 it says, and we bring good news that the God who promised to the, to the fathers that he, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. As it's also written in the second psalm, so it begins to quote and say, look, at this is how it's been pointing to Jesus. You are my son, today I have begotten you. He's quoting Psalm actually too. It says, and as for the fact that he had raised him from the dead, no more to return to corruption. He has, uh, he has spoken in this way. I will give you the, whole, the holy and sure blessing of David. That's Isaiah 53. Therefore, he says also to another, in another psalm, you will not let the holy one see corruption. That's Psalm 16. It says, for David, after he had served his purpose in his own generation, had fallen asleep and laid with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning that all of Israel had their king, put their hope in their king, hope God would raise up another one like David. He said, David... If you want to visit his grave, it's over in Jerusalem. You could see it. He's not the one. But he who God's raised up did not see corruption, meaning Jesus. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Now here's where we start to see some of Paul's doctrine. Through this man forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you and by him everyone who is believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed from the law of Moses this is a a, 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 a glorious sound to those who are the hearers especially the God fearing people the outsiders beware therefore lest what is said to the prophets that should come uh, that should come about look you scoffers be astounded and perish meaning if you don't want to hear it and perceive it and scoff at it you'll perish he says i am doing a work in your days a work that will not be believed even if one tells it to you that's habakkuk one he's quoting we we want to hear more they started saying the gentiles were going crazy they're like, they followed him out. They said, come back next Sunday or the Sabbath, if you will, and come back and we want to hear more. And so they do. 
It's overflowing. So much so that it's frustrating because they had filled the synagogue. They were filled the stairs most likely. The Bible says that it felt like almost the entire city came out to hear what Paul was preaching. It resonated with people. Paul could have written off all these people and said, look at this Roman world they have. They're a colony. They have citizenship. They're the elite of the elite. But he didn't do it because he knew the gospel was more important than all of that. You never write people off. Look at how they responded. The very last thing is then the pathway. There's a pathway once someone hears the gospel that they must choose, that we all had to choose. And if you're in this room and you're still teetering out, there's a pathway when you hear the gospel. There is either putting your life and faith and hope in Christ or there's not. One way leads to eternity without God and perishing. One way leads to eternal life. I don't think anyone should make their decisions based on fear but on faith. But there is a pathway that God doesn't hide from his people. You have a choice to make. Paul will get to you. Every single person makes a choice in light of the gospel for salvation. Every single person is confronted with a choice when they hear the gospel for salvation and life in Christ. It's either that or separation from God. Some of the synagogue leaders then, after they see all the people arriving and Paul beginning to preach again, they get a real problem with it. And they rally up other people. And this is what Paul says, and I'll close with this scripture, Acts 13, 46. And this is how he closes it out with the pathway. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you since you thrust it aside. Now, there are people we will share the gospel with that will thrust it aside, and that's, that's the pathway that they want. It may not be the pathway they'll stay on. Later on, someone m- might preach the gospel, and they might receive it. But in our encounters, there are those who will thrust it aside. And that's just what happens. And he goes on, he says, And and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. You did this to yourself, Paul says. I didn't do it to you. Behold, you are turning, uh, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For the Lord has commanded us, saying, this is in Isaiah 49, what, what, what Israel was supposed to do is if I have made you a great light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul just says we were originally fulfilling what we were called to do in the first place, to bring the good news of God to the world, but through Jesus. Now the crowds heard it and they went crazy. They started rejoicing. They started celebrating. They loved it. The Jewish hearers did not. And the prominent leaders of the city thrust them out of the city. And there's a saying that Paul says is that Paul and Barnabas literally walked out. They took the dust and dusted it off their feet and they kept going on. It was a way of saying, well, listen, that happened. That's what they want. That's their choice. We're going on into holy ground to the next place. And they go on, which we'll pick up next week. You, 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 you can't be responsible for someone's choice. It's their path. But when we look through it, as we share the gospel, we have to remember that we're going to bring perspective. We're going to, we're going to proclaim. We're going to bring uh, the perception that God's been doing something this whole time. And God's been preparing this whole time. And then we're going to bring the pathway. People have to know that there's a path that they'll have to choose.
in this life. But don't let the naysayers or people who get angry and upset because you're presenting truth deter you. This last week I've spent, this guy, everybody knows, uh, I love Tom Brady and uh, deeply love him. And he, <laughs> I've watched this guy who put together a total of eight hours of videos of during his year with the Buccaneers, the first year of everything everybody said about him and then how he delivered constantly. It was back and forth. And I was like, I just got, I'm, I'm going to go for it. I'm all in with you on this journey, buddy. And so it just was back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. And it was like, I just, I told Anna, I was like, I don't know how anybody could endure that much criticism and continue to believe in what they're doing. It was national. It was, he was a laughing stock to so many commentators. But then he delivered and then, I couldn't wait to the very end to hear all of their commenting on the day after the Super Bowl. It was a wonderful, wonderful day. He won the Super Bowl. And it, it, it was one of those things where you just you have to dust your feet off and you have to continue to go because what you believe is so much stronger than what the world will tell you. What you believe is even stronger than what someone even knows for themselves. And if you just write people off, you won't, you won't have that response Paul had where the whole city started gathering. Or those two friends in India who decided to evangelize and people came out and came out. Don't hold back. Acts 13 in these journeys is Paul and Barnabas or whoever he's with leading a pathway that we can follow. The world is dying. The world is desperate. And you were dead before you met Christ. Don't forget that, that, that God is presenting people in front of you all the time. Through this sermon, there are people who are spiritually inclined who are just waiting to hear the gospel, maybe for the fifth time or the hundredth time, but the Spirit will do His work. You just be faithful. God, we love you and we thank you for your love for us, for your work that has continued for thousands of years, God. Now billions of people are, are, in the, are, the, are really the result of the wake of what Paul and Barnabas were faithful to do. God, our world needs you more than ever, God. Our world desires you. So many people are lost and confused, God. So many people are searching and seeking and have, have gone down every rabbit hole to find happiness, fulfillment, and joy, God, and not realizing that the gospel is there to fill that person every single time. And God, let us be a church that is mobile, that, that where is the gospel taking us? It might be two feet to the cubicle next door or 20 feet across the street to the neighbor's house. I don't know, God, but where are you taking us with the gospel? And let us be people who are faithful, who don't hold back and share how good you are and that good news is here for us. And let us not forget that when people die and they do not have eternity with you and they perish, that God, that that hurts your heart and God, that you've commissioned us to go and bring your children to you, that we're part of that, God. Help us hold those people on our hearts and minds for you, like Paul did in all of his journey. We love you in Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me this last song?